0: All right, this morning I'm tackling uh, grabbing an elephant with one bite and hoping that we can at least get a bite, not necessarily tackle this issue. So I want to talk to you about some things that's probably much bigger than a Sunday morning service, but you know what? I'm talking, so just accept it. (laughs) (laughs) Most of us are about to walk into this holiday season, right? And with our families and our friends and our in-laws and our outlaws, And um, I think it would be a good time for us to talk about Christian perfection. Okay? Uh, we all want to be perfect, right? Uh, or at least most of us who follow Jesus don't want to discredit him. And uh, we want to make, uh, sort of make him famous and uh, create an interest about him because of our encounter with him and the lives particularly of those that we care about and those that we love. Our text for this morning is out of Matthew chapter five. And Jesus is talking about perfection here. And he makes this statement. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you instead, love your enemies, pray for people you don't wanna pray for, people who persecute you, that you may be, this. Is the reason you're doing that is so that you're like your father, that you may be sons and daughters of your father in heaven. We're most like God when we Relate appropriately to people. Is what he's saying. God causes the sunshine to rise on evil people and good people, and rain, which is a blessing and a strength and is necessary for life, He sends that to righteous people and unrighteous people. So He's giving to both. If you only love people who love you, <laughs> you'd be okay right? What reward will you get? I mean, everybody does that, right? Tax collectors do that. But if you only greet your brothers, people that you're already in relationship with. You only be nice to them. What what are you doing more than any others? Pagans do that. But then he says, watch it, be perfect, therefore. Be perfect, here's Christian perfection. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, let me take the pressure off of you <laughs> at the get-go and, and say that Christian perfection is not really the um, result of human effort or some kind of human accomplishment, but that it's really... Uh, reflection. Everybody say reflection. It's a reflection of what's going on inside God. It's a reflection of the perfect one. Um, You know, just like the moon reflects the sun. The moon doesn't have its own light. It has borrowed light. And yet it reflects it. It's this idea that our relationship to God catches God's love and reflects it to people around us. That's the thing that Jesus says is our call to perfection. We're not responsible to create the perfection of God, but to reflect it through reflection. You know, this reflection, it it would be ridiculous to say that that's easy because it means you have to get selfless. (laughs) And 99% of us are selfish, right? The 1% of you who are not selfish are liars (laughs) or claim you're not selfish, you're liars. And it's so selfish of you to claim that. What's interesting about this text that we just read about Jesus describing perfection, he's talking about how the father relates is what perfection's about. How he relates to others than other than himself. And in this text, God is relating to both good and evil. He's relating to unrighteous and righteous. He's relating to people who love him and he's relating to people who do not love him. People who greet him and people who refuse to greet him. That somehow God... Is engaged with these folks. And when Jesus is asking us to be perfect in this way, he's asking us to relate to both good and evil people, to both the righteous people and the unrighteous people, to those who greet us and love us, and to those who do not greet us and do not love us. That somehow as we we begin to love people like this, we are entering into perfection. Now, Jesus, as his message unfolds, we discover that he's not as he is to copycat God's love. But what he's asking, you know, by our human effort and by trying to learn how to do it. But what he's asking us to do is he's saying, listen, develop an open and sort of vulnerable listening posture before God. And as a result of our openness and the spirituality that's engendered in in faith, that that his love begins to come into our lives and begins to flow through us to others. Uh, Paul basically suggests this in Romans 5. He says, and hope does not disappoint us. Because God, hope is always that something good is going to happen, right? It's that, it's that idea that something can get better. And he says, you don't, have to, you don't have to walk into your families and walk into your relationships and walk into your world hopeless. You can have hope, it doesn't have to be disappointing because the key is God has poured His poured out his love, this love he has for the good and the evil, this love he has for the righteous and the unrighteous, this love that he has for, for those who greet him and those who don't. He said, this love has been poured into us, into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So somehow this this idea of of Christian perfection is not humans working it out, but humans surrendering to a God who works it out. Uh, This works because faith causes us to be dependent and broken and surrendered people uh, who are still before God. And, and in that stillness, we begin to reflect him to a broken world around us, to hurting and broken lives around us. Um, we become the imago Dei. The Latin phrase is the imago Dei. It means the image of God, the very, the very essence of God himself, that, that, that we're not a self-created people, but that we are the people of God, that we're actually the body of Christ, his body in the world, present physically in the world. Our spiritual disciplines from prayer and study to coming to church to, to approaching the Eucharist where the, the, it carries the physical story of Jesus, re- reflects it to us. Or fasting or anything that you would do, uh, silence before God. Um, these are stilling moments in our souls. And we, we do these things so that in our stillness we can catch the reflection. You know, uh, we go to the Lake of the Ozarks every summer have for 20 years. And um, uh, in the mornings, you know, it's, it's a busy lake. It's a big lake. It's bigger than Grand Lake. And it's, it's, a, uh, it's a real busy lake. Boats all over. But in the morning when no boats have been out, nobody's been tooling around, it's just it, just glass. And you can see all the reflections. If you go up, you can see reflections. Once the day gets started, you can't see it. There's too much too much activity. It's that kind of idea that we get still in these practices enough to catch his reflection. When we see how God relates and we naturally begin to relate that to others back to him as well as to others around us, there's an interesting text, First John 4, just says it so succinctly, uh, very pithy. We love because he first loved us. The reason we can love God is because he loved us. The reason we can love others is because he loved us. And it's that love that hits us that reflects back to him. The reason God relates to his creation this way, this loving kind of radical chasing, no matter if you're good or bad or righteous or unrighteous or care for him or don't care for him, the reason he does that is because this is the way he relates to himself. God is Trinity. Within God himself, there's this incautious, self-abandoning, pouring out from father to son, son to spirit, spirit to father, spirit to son. It's just this... This kind of flow this God is love is a love in motion creating what many theologians have historically called the divine dance there's this motion inside God God is dancing <laughs> and what we do is get invited into the dance this dance of self uh, you know giving and vulnerability and caring it's it's this thing that's going on in God it spills to us and we get caught into that dance now let me uh this thing that's going on inside God this love that's happening inside God it's um it's at the heart of all that exists and it's this it's the cause of all that exists it's the reason that creation happened was because of this activity that's inside God himself And so I I need to get a little bit theological, a little bit philosophical for just a bit. I know you love it. Uh, uh, It's thoroughly impractical. But decide to listen because it ends up being powerfully practical. Um, What makes God God in theological terms is his relatability. It's it's the mystery of the Trinity, and, and, and when we say it's mystery, it doesn't mean there's not knowing. It's just there's infinite knowing. You'll never, like a circle never ends. It, it you, you, you will never end in your knowing of God. That doesn't mean you can't know anything about him. It just means you won't know everything about him. And our language is always pale because he's God. <laughs> you can't trace him, but you can get bits and pieces of him. Uh, you can never nail him down. But the, the, the mystery of the Trinity is about these three persons who are one substance, one being, Uh, The mystery is about perfect vulnerability, perfect self-giving, perfect loving of persons who dance together to reveal what we know as God. In other words, what makes God God is not the persons within the Trinity that make up God, but that it's how these persons relate that make God God. Trinity is not about three perfectly independent beings who met somewhere and came together and decided to do perfect things together. That's not what Trinity is. But they could not have lived lives separately. There was no separation of life. It isn't, see, the essence of the Trinity, when we think of Trinity, we tend to think, because we're so Western, we tend to think one, two, three. One, you know, Father plus Son plus Holy Ghost equals God. That's what we think. But, but Christian theology doesn't go one to three. Christianity basically says no. The, the formula is three to one. In other words, there was never a time when the three were separate. There was never independence. There was never, uh, because the essence of God is always community. Now think about this a minute. The essence of all that is, is community. The essence of all that is, isn't individuation. It's interconnectedness. Because God, what makes God God is interconnectedness. God is three persons in absolute relatedness so that they're one substance. Aquinas in the 13th century, he wrote, God is one substance and relationship constitutes the very nature of that substance. Um. God is not three independent substances that got together. This is important. The primary point of Trinity is not the individual father, the individual son, the individual Holy Spirit. The primary point of the Trinity is what happens between them. In the way, you know, what we're saying is that God, God is more the relatability of persons than he is a thing. The word God, the term God, is referring to the relatability of persons. It's not so much a thing. The term God in actuality is more of a verb than a noun. (laughs) I know you're just enthralled with this. It describes what's going on. So let me unpack it just a little bit more just to drive you crazy. Uh, In the West our thought structures, the way that we reason, the way that we think, the way that we cogitate, the way we get our minds around things, it was influenced most dramatically by this guy who lived, who was born in 384, died in 322. He only was 62 years old when he died. A guy named Aristotle. Most of you have heard of Aristotle. He is the guy that has influenced the way you think more than you could ever imagine. Unless you study philosophy, you'll go, oh my gosh. Brilliant guy. pagan." He talked about the rules that govern the structure of things, and the West has bought into them. I'll mention two of them. He talked about how things have substance. Everybody say substance. Things have substance. You'll see this in a minute very clearly. And he talked about things having relationships. Say relationship. So you have substance and you have relationship. Now, for Aristotle, the substance of a thing was what made it a thing, right? Right? What made it a thing independent of everything else, independence is the operative term here. Substance is a thing. So a tree is a tree all by itself, right? A man is a man all by himself. That's his substance. He's a man all by himself. A thing is what it is, but things also have relationships. Okay, so you have substance, what it is, and relationships. So a tree, when it's related to other trees, is now in relationship with other trees. It is now a, a forest, right? So a man who gets in relationship with a woman and marries that woman is now a husband. But the husband defines his relationship. He's still a man in substance. He's a husband in relationship. Or if he has a child with this woman, he's also now a father. But the father describes his relationship, his essence, his substance. He's a man. But he's in relationship as a father or relationship as a husband. We all get this. This This is Western thought. That makes sense to us. We buy into the idea that there's a priority to his individuated distinction. That he has to first be a man before he can be a father. That a tree has to first be a tree before it can be in a forest. That totally makes sense to us. And on this view, the individual tree brings its treeness to the forest. And the individual man brings his madness to the fatherhood, brings his madness to being a husband. The problem is, is what if that's not just exactly right? Because if you look at a tree that's in a forest, it's very different than a tree that's out in a field by itself. I mean, physiologically. You put a tree in the middle of a forest, it has a very different kind of structure than if you take that tree and put it out in the middle of a field. How it responds to the wind, how the structure, how strong it is, depends on where it's placed in the forest. So in a very real way, the very essence of the tree has been defined by the relationship it has to other trees. And the same thing is true for men. You take a man and throw him into a relationship with a wife, how much he's willing to let that relationship form him determines how good of a husband he'll be. He's not just coming in as man who relates as husband. His very manness needs to be affected by that wife or he's not a very good husband. His very manness needs to be affected by his child or he's not a very good father. So even though Aristotle is saying primarily you're a man before you can be a father, that substance trumps relationship. And in a real way, that's not true. There's a little more intermingling than that. In fact, when you start looking at modern science, quantum mechanics recently has begun to show us that the scene world, you know, the substance of things, planets, stars, all that kind of stuff, they're not as important as they might see. In fact, they're saying, showing us, that there are forces we don't see that connect everything, that, that, that the new revelation in science is that everything's connected. Everything is interconnected, that there's there's something going on that makes all the energy of the universe sort of work as a... There's, they can't define it. They, they've come up with theories like string theory. They come up with all these kind of ideas to figure out how is this all working, but they understand one thing. Everything is in relationship. And that relationship determines what things are, which flips Aristotle's thought. Because Aristotle's saying, no, 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 what, you, what a thing is is what a thing is primarily. Secondarily is relationship. Now, have you ever heard uh, anyone say, people in the Eastern world think different than people in the West? You probably heard that kind of comment, that we're Westerners, we think different than people in the East, the way they process things. A lot of times you'll hear that, but, but this is one of the ways that we can show you exactly what that is. Um, one of the w- most significant ways that people in the East think differently than people in the West is in this point of what's more important, the tree or the forest? What's more important, the man or him being a father or being a husband, the relationship. We focus primarily on things being things, and then secondarily on how things are in relationship with other people. The East, people in the East also think historically that things are things, and that things have relationship with other things. But they put the focus on the relationship first. The East, for Eastern non-Aristotelian thinkers, they haven't been influenced by Aristotle, they believe that relationship is more important than the thing itself. I'll give you a couple of quotes from a book I have on Taoism. It's an ancient philosophy uh, from the Far East. Listen to this quote. Quote, you cannot define something in terms of itself. You can only define things by how they relate to other things, end quote. In other words, things are most primarily relational before they're things. Here's another quote. Heaven and earth endure because they are not individual. They exist for the well-being of all things. See, relationship is primary at Eastern thought because of the notion of interconnectivity. Things cannot live alone. So the primary issue for the East is relationship, not substance, not what the thing is on its own. Remember, Jesus grew up in the East. He wasn't Greek. The Greek world, the Romo-Greco world, the the Greco-Roman world was influencing Jesus' world, but Jesus was essentially Eastern. And that's why when you read Jesus, you discover he speaks of relationship as primary. For Jesus, we are who we are because of how we relate to others in our lives. If you relate to God, you'll be a very different substance, a very different man, a very different woman than if you don't relate to God. This notion that that for Jesus, we are ultimately determined in our personhood by the relationships we're engaged in. So the Taoism quote I just gave you, that you cannot define something in terms of itself, you can only define it, uh, a thing in terms of how it relates to other things, is a very gospel kind of thing to say. Therefore, Christianity asserts relationship trumps substance or what we are when we stand alone our treeness. <laughs> this is weird for us this is but yet this is the way christians in the west tend to see god when we look at god we want to know how he is i mean where is he you know uh, how is the trinity how is the father as he stands alone what's he like what, what are the what you know what, what 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 are the boundaries of the father? What are the boundaries of the son? So when we talk trinity, what is what is the role of the holy spirit? Can you get clear with me? Because I want to make sure I'm talking to the right one. Because you know, when they come bring their briefcase of fatherness, I want to make sure I address the appropriate person. We don't understand that you know, we're really kind of interested more in who they are apart than who they are together same thing true when we come to church when we live our faith we're not so interested in who we are together we kind of think you know i got to get meet myself together and get my bible and kind of get my life together and then i kind of come to church and then we'll kind of figure out what we are you know when you let me gift to you and be perfect to you and you're just secondary. This relationship we have doesn't define me. I would never get that vulnerable. I would never be that open. I would never be that yielded. I've got to come with my best on these. were Greeks, Westerners. But what if God is primarily to be thought of in terms of relationship? I mean, the Trinity is a community of persons. Three, that love one another in a particular way. A self-outpouring, self-giving, extremely vulnerable way. In Trinity, there is absolute trust, absolute love, absolute communion, vulnerability, relationship. In fact, this is what makes God, God. What What if what makes God, God is the very thing we freak out about as individuals? Maybe that's why we're not so godly. Because we don't want to be self-giving and vulnerable with each other. The important thing is what's going on between the persons of God, not what's individuated. <laughs> we, we tend, you know, we do get a little more Eastern. I need to get my thing. Uh, when we talk about body parts, right? Um, I bought some body parts last night. I went to the the new Whole Foods place, and I got some some, uh, organic chicken livers, and (coughs) I showed them that Janice and Brent were there too, and I showed Janice these, and she goes, gross, so did Gail. See these? These are organic chicken livers. Now, most of us, when it comes to body parts, I I was actually looking for a cow tongue because they're bigger. But here's a, a chicken liver. Now, n- most of you would never be grossed out at this. Anybody want to hold it? <laughs> most of you would never be grossed out at this if I had the chicken up here. The real chicken, the whole chicken, the not dead chicken, right? Because, you, I mean, the chicken, you wouldn't look at a live chicken running up here and goes, oh, I hate the chicken liver that's in that chicken. <laughs> you you don't care about the chicken liver in the chicken and it's not gross when it's in the chicken. Right? See, none of us would think, well, this is substantively a liver. In and of itself, it is a liver. Right? Primarily, it's a liver. It just happens to be in a chicken. We would never think that. When it comes to body parts, we think, no, it's very personhood. It's very essence is defined because it's in the chicken. See, see, this is Trinitarian, it's pale, but it's Trinitarian thought. It's this notion that God in his relatability to himself, that somehow as the person who we know as the father becomes fatherness. It's because as the person we call father is self-giving and releasing and vulnerable and, and, and pouring out without condition, to the son and to the spirit and the spirit to the son. And when none unsan- fatherness comes out, his uniqueness, his personhood comes out of that love, out of that dance. The son's sonness comes out because the son is giving and vulnerable and open and surrendered and receiving. And it's out of that Relationship that all of a sudden his sonness, his his personhood of sonness comes out. Same with spirit; the spiritness comes out because of the, not because they were over here somewhere thinking, you know, I'm a pretty incredible son. I think I'll bring my sonness into this relationship and let's get an agreement. They're not standalone. Their very personhood comes out of relationship. This is what we learn from Trinity. This. Defines Christianity very differently than Aristotle would. This means who you are as a person and who you are as a Christian can never be found out with you alone by yourself trying to figure it out. It's only when you come in openness and loving the other, both the good and the evil, both the righteous and the unrighteous, both the ones who love you and the ones who don't, that somehow in that kind of vulnerable, open, giving, loving, divine dance, can you be discovered in your personhood? And speaking of the individual Christian, Paul, he has this argument. Most of you know this. This is First Corinthians 12. Listen to it. But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If one were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. The head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On contrary, those parts of the body which seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts we think have less honor, we should treat with special honor. See, we are not just a stand alone. We're not standalone things. We are not just individual Christians. Seeing yourself as part of the body of Christ should be primary in your thinking. Over just seeing yourself as a standalone Christian, we Westerners have a real hard time with this. And for us, Christianity is a private affair, more than a corporate affair. And for us, you know, this is why some of some of us don't care anything about church history. Why do you care about that? Just give me the Bible. If I got the Bible, the Word of God, I'll go home by myself. I'll read it. I'll get perfect. I'll come back and just be perfect at you. You know, me and my Bible make God and me a majority. In fact, I'm my own Pope. I just determine what? When I come to church, I listen. I say, well, you know, I don't know. I agree with that. I don't agree with that. Just, you know, it's just not in the word of God like I understand the word of God. Not sure. I even like being here. It's certainly secondary to my faith. It's nothing we do here that's primary. This is how we think. And if, if the unity within God, the absolute relationship within God, is what theologians claim to be the power of God, no wonder we have such little power. This body thinking over being individual is one step closer to the notion of Trinity. But there's more deepness in the Trinity because, because scholars point to text like Philippians 2 to give us a peek at what's going on inside God. Look at it quickly. Your attitude should be the same as this in Christ Jesus who being in the very nature of God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. It didn't grasp equality. How much do we grasp equality? I need to be treated fairly. I need to make sure nobody treats me wrong. I need to get my due. He didn't regard, regard equality as something to be grasped, but he makes himself nothing. He takes on the very nurture, nature of a servant. This is what's going on. Theologians say, this is, this is a snapshot of what Jesus is like, but it's a snapshot of what the father is like and what the spirit is like. That there's this constant pushing back of grasping, uh, making themselves nothing, taking on this form of servant and saying, servant for me looks like fatherness. Servant for me looks like sonness. Servant for me looks like spiritness. This is the attitude at play between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This self-giving Father pours himself into the self-giving Son, pours himself into the self-giving Spirit on and on and on in the dance. Nothing held back. There's a great quote from a guy named Richard of St. Victor in 1173. He wrote this, watch it. For God to be good, God can be one. For God to be loving, God has to be two because love is always relationship. For God to be supreme joy and happiness, God has to be three. Why? He's basically saying that there's something about the relationship of three that gives rise to something more. When two are relating with each other, they tend to move toward rest. Even if they are polarities, they tend to get into a place of stasis and rest. When you enter a third, something happens. Something is disrupted. I mean, those of you know, you can think about a couple. And when a couple gets together, you know, you could have a sense of rest. But as they happen to come, a child enters into that context, right? Something more has got to happen. You can't just sit with three and get into rest. Three has to do something. This this notion that, that somehow the three gives rise to creation. This is the theological explanation that that God in his life and love dance ended up emitting and creating what was not the universe and us. (laughs) Trinity by nature creates what did not exist before. So here's my point. When we talk about Christian perfection, we are not talking about you and I being independently perfect substances that stand alone. And then we go out in perfection. We're talking about the end game of being in relationship with the Trinity, which gives rise to creation. Hence, we become the new creations. And that, and that, that as a result, we are Trinity fruit. And we're, we're able to enter into that divine dance of self-giving and love. And then we reflect that self-giving and love and become vulnerable with others so that we can bring new things to them. We start expanding the new creation. Because creation comes out of that kind of love. When you enter into the dance of the Trinity, you're really entering in a place where all things can become new and old things pass away. And that's the hope. The hope that doesn't disappoint us. We're bringing the love of God to that Thanksgiving table. We're bringing the love of God to our work. That if we'll intentionally become still and learn to reflect Him, it starts changing the world around us. The problem is, it's... uh, It's scary because we are so used to being private and self-conscious and sort of protective. This notion of unconditional and vulnerable love that's in the Trinity feels reckless and unsafe. And because we're supposed to bring this incautiously to the good, that's okay, but to the evil, To, to the righteous, that's okay, but to the unrighteous, to those that love me, that's okay, but to those who don't love me, who won't greet me and Jesus says it. No, you've gotta be like your father. He's reckless, good and evil, righteous and unrighteous. Those who greet him and those who refuse to greet him, he's running at them incautiously, why? Because it's when you get hit by that reckless, incautious, self-giving, vulnerable love, it brings new creation. So he's asking us. Christian perfection is being called by Jesus to enter into the activity of Trinity and express that to humanity. <laughs> boundaries on this view, we have to have boundaries, but they're not protectionary boundaries that we're used to, where we're afraid and so you know we we don't allow people to abuse us. You know, and so we have to put these protective boundaries up and we're afraid. But the fact is, we don't allow people to abuse, abuse us. We're not supposed to. But the reason is, it's because it's not good for them. It's not because we're trying to protect ourselves. You know, you can slap me, I'll turn the other cheek. I know the healer. I, I'm not afraid of the, of the rejection, I'm not afraid of the abuse because I'm caught up in a God who has pulled me into his dance of total acceptance and I find myself, my person in God, and I find strength, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So in other words, I can, because of my relationship with him, I can go out and do all things. I don't have to be afraid, but I can't let people cross lines and break boundaries and hurt me or those I am involved with because it's not good for them. I was just talking to a, it's not the right loving thing to allow. I was talking to this lady were I was preaching out in Phoenix and a few weeks ago, and this lady came up to me. She was a pastor's wife. She was visiting the church that day and she came up to me and she said, I, I've been talking a little bit about this idea of bearing your cross and la la but she came up to me. She said, I want to tell you a story. She said, about 15 years ago, she said, a man broke into our house. I was alone. He had a knife. He grabbed me by the hair. He pulled me down. He had the knife in my throat. She said, I, I knew I was going to die. And she said, but, but all of a sudden, she's. I heard myself saying to him, listen, you're better than this. You're a creation. This was not what God intended for you. You're better than this. This isn't what you want to do. And she started talking to him, thinking about him, thinking about what was going on inside and what would have driven him to do this. What's happening in you? This, you're made for something better than this. And then she talked to him. He finally let go of her. She went outside and called 911 on her phone. He eventually came out and sat on the curb next to her when the police were coming. They took him in. They, he, he went to prison for 12 years. In the context, her and her husband were reaching out to him and his family. There were drug, drug addiction and all kinds of problems going on. When he finally got out, a couple of years after he'd been out, they came over to he and his wife came over to their house for dinner. And they're sitting there and, and he told her the rest of the story. He said, he said, I want you to know, when, when you started talking to me like that, he said, I couldn't hurt you. He said, it was like I was frozen. I, and I started thinking, yeah, why am I doing this? How did it get like this? He just locked him up. And he, later he came to Christ and his life turned around. But, but here's the, the beautiful thing about that story, is that she wasn't just reacting out of personal protection. There was absolute protection there, but she was acting for the love of the other. Bottom line is, if she'd have been dead or died, she'd have gone to heaven. Oh, shucks. I mean, there's loss of that. But see, sometimes because we're so individuated and so concerned about ourselves, we forget that the way that we even do what we do or take stands that we take or fight for things that we fight for shouldn't be because we're just fighting for self protection, but because we're fighting for the love and the boundaries of care are actually winning in the world, not because we're trying to protect ourselves. There's one more text. This is Philippians chapter one and verse nine. In fact, stand up, would you? So you have the illusion of finish. (laughs) Paul says, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. See, loving isn't just about a feeling. It's about wisdom. It's about understanding. It's about acting and doing what's right in the context, not because of self-protection, but because of open commitment, the way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are committed to us and to each other. He says that you'll be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until Jesus comes, filled with the fruit of rightness, doing what's right, that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, Christian, Christian perfection is not about performance. It's about loving others with Trinitarian love, which is that risky, selfless, reckless, vulnerable, abandoning love. When we love others in this way, it, we show this the, the hidden, unmanifest, kind of light of God to other people. We, 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 we basically show the light of the divine, make it accessible to people who haven't accessed it. In this loving way, we're expanding God's creative reach. We call people into the dance of the Trinity and into what God is pouring and giving himself recklessly to others. See, this is the only way that eternity makes sense. I mean, if you think that God is just like this individuated being up there who's kind of the monarch that's keeping track of the good things you do and the stupid things you do, and then when you finally get to heaven you're going to be rewarded with you know blessing and then some loss if you haven't really said yes to God in every way, and then you're going to live up in heaven for eternity with this with this divine monarch. how does that make sense? but when you understand that there's a being who is Totally engaged in this self giving, committed love to the place that is a dance, so much so that it spills to create a fourth and a more. And that we are a part of this dead. So When we come into eternity, we're in this relationship with this being known as God. And somehow we go into a place where an eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, neither's has entered into the heart of man. What God has in store. This is an expanding reality of being part of a being who's totally engaged with us. It's not just oh, us going to heaven, playing harps, getting some rewards, hanging around. When we reflect this love, it isn't about you and me. I told the folks last night, it's like, and I mentioned earlier, it's like the moon. The moon doesn't have much going for itself. It's a dead rock. And if you really look at it closely, the closer you look, the more you realize all it has is craters. And a dark side. Right? Right? And the truth is, if we look closer at you, all you got is craters and a dark side, right? The only hope the moon has, that rock has, is to position itself so it catches light. And sometimes of the month, it catches a little slivers. Sometimes of the month, it's bad days. It's a new moon, can't even see it. It's having a bad day. But sometimes it's a full moon and it radiates light. It doesn't have any light, Don't be fooled. The moon does not have light. It only has borrowed light. We don't have to have any light. This isn't about human performance. This is about positioning our hearts before a Trinitarian God who is actively engaged with us. And the more we yield and still and give ourselves to him in these things like prayer, coming to church, whatever we do, whatever does that for you. The the more you do that, the more you reflect light. So when you go to Thanksgiving or when you go to your job, it isn't about you performing, it's about you catching him, saying, God, help me go in here being self-abandoned. Help me go in here, let me be vulnerable. Help me go in here and be open and caring. Help me treat the unrighteous and the evil ones the same way I treat the good and the righteous ones. And if you dare to do that, you will bring light that transforms the world. So basically, your role is to moon the world. (laughs) Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that somehow our hearts will be captured by your awesomeness, by your grandeur, by your power. And that when we come in places like this, we won't just try to come trying to be the best we are. But that we will come and realize that it's because we're together that forms who we are. That we can be vulnerable and we can be open and we can come and enter into this moment with each other. But not only that, with the, with the whole arc of the church, even as we come to the table now, we're doing something that every believer has done since the night that you were betrayed. And you took the bread and you broke it and that we're entering into this communion with the saints that defines who we are. We're not standalone beings. We're in the forest. We're not just standalone livers. That's creepy, scary movie stuff. We're in the body. And who we are is defined by our orientation within it. Help us catch this. Help us be caught by this. I'm gonna ask those that are helping us with communion to come forward. You know, this is just a little example. You know, when we decide to change a little thing like communion, and instead of you coming and grabbing it and dipping it, we're having it held by another person. Some of you, that freaks you out a little because you think, you know, I was just getting down to liking what we do here and now you're messing it up with a person in it. <laughs> because we're so, we're so used to making our whole faith just us and God. But what if we're doing this because of messages like we just said? That we're trying to remember that when we come together to the table or come together in God's presence, that it, faith is as corporate as it is private. And that you got to remember you're in the chicken or you're creepy. Right? So the night, lift up the bread, would you, that are holding the bread. The night that he was betrayed, the scripture says he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body. Now, precious God, we're asking you by the power of the Holy Spirit to enter this bread and to cause it to become for us the body of Christ. And we, in our hearts, say to you, welcome, Lord Jesus Christ. And let me have you lift the cup. In the same way, the scripture says he took the cup and after he'd given thanks, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. And that you said to us, Jesus, that we were to do this in memory of you. And so we ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit, God, to enter into this cup so that it becomes more than just the cup for us, more than just the juice, that it will become for us the blood of Christ. And so, Jesus, we welcome you into it. And we say to you, welcome into our presence. Lord, we pray that as we come, that this meal will be formative to us, that we will be open and yielded and vulnerable and self-giving just like you are within yourself. And that somehow we enter into the dance of eternity and the dance of God. We ask in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, let's declare this our prayer uh, to prepare ourselves to come as he taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Come and receive the body and bless.